so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a research fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech Newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by Dan Darling to talk about his new book from Zondervan, Agents of Grace, How to Bridge Divides and Love as Jesus Love from Zondervan. Today, we discuss the nature of Christian unity as well as the relationship of truth and grace in the Christian ethic. Dan Darling is an author, pastor, and Christian leader. He's currently the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as serving as an assistant professor of faith and culture at Texas Baptist College. Prior to his leadership at the Land Center, Dan served as the Senior Vice President for Communications at National Religious Broadcasters, as well as the Vice President of Communications at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Digital Public Square. It's a real joy to always have you on the podcast. Uh, You're a good friend and a mentor, um, but it's fun to have you on talking about your new book, Agents of Grace, that was recently published with Zondervan. But before we dive into the conversation itself, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and also a little bit about your writing journey. One thing that listeners probably well know um, is that you were actually one of the first to kind of encourage me and push me into writing. I had an idea. I pitched it to you. You said, hey, you should do that. And I was really panicked and kind of overwhelmed by it. But the more I wrote, the more I read, and the more I wrote, you know, you continue to get opportunities. And you were just one that really throughout the entire time just constantly encouraging me in that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and what kind of got you set on the path of writing. Well, it's interesting. You know, um, I've always loved words. Um, when I was a kid, we didn't have a TV in our house for whatever reason. My parents were strict about that. They didn't want us to have a TV. We had, so we had radio and we had, we got three newspapers every day in Chicago. This was before the internet. My kids can't believe that, but um, we'd go down to the end of the driveway and we'd like, I'd you know, get the newspaper and I'd just read. I always loved reading. I always loved words. When I was in like junior high, I had a teacher who looked at some of my writing assignments and was like, you know, I think you have some talent here. You should pursue this. And, you know, when you're a middle school kid and you're like, you know, if someone tells you you're good at something, you're like, okay, maybe I'm going to go with that. So I've always, I've always enjoyed it. And, you know, writing is something that kind of travels with you. So I've, I've worked in communications. I've worked, you know, for Christian organizations, as a writer and editor. I've pastored, worked in communications, 
and I'm a professor. So it kind of travels with you and is is almost like a it accompanies your your life. For me, I feel like a little bit like I think it was George Will that said, you know, if I wasn't writing, I don't know what I would be doing. Uh, I just, you know, you sort of wake up and you're you have ideas and it's one of the things I enjoy doing. As I tell people, I can't dance and I can't weld, I can't make furniture, but I can write. So it's something I enjoy doing. And really along the way, people gave me opportunities. One thing's reason why I like to encourage other young writers, because you know, I was there at one point where people said you should get your stuff published, or people opened a door for you. They published you when maybe you were really inexperienced. They gave you an opportunity, they gave you a byline, they did something like that and really helped uh, your career. So I really I like to do that for other people too, to try to push them along in their careers. Yeah, it always reminds me of the kind of the old adage, be who you needed when you were younger. Um, and that's something that you've been such an encouragement to me over the years and kind of even reminding me a lot of times in our professions, people say, I want to be a writer, I want to be a writer. But you always said writers write. We don't talk about writing, we actually sit down and do it. And it's it's a hard work. It's not an easy job by any means. And I mean, one of the things you can kind of look at your own career, you are at this point, you're teetering on a prolific author. I don't know if you know that or not. You have so many books and a number that you still have in process and things. Uh, this book is kind of a special book, though. And I know it holds kind of a special place in your heart, not only because it's a book that you long wanted to write. You kind of open up talking about this is a book you've long wanted to write, especially seeing a lot of the tensions, especially in the public square, some really, really important issues, but the way that Christians engage on those. So you wanted to do that, but there was also some unforeseen circumstances that kind of thrust you not only into the spotlight in terms of like breaking story at the New York Times, but also kind of thrust you into writing a book like this because of the great need. So I wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit about the story and why you wanted to write this book now. Well, it's something that's kind of been percolating in me for a while. You know, I've written about my book, Away With Words, kind of talked about civility and the division that we have kind of writ large in society and really focusing on the way the digital age has has done that and how can we conduct ourselves online. I've written a book on human dignity about how we should see each other. But this one is a little bit more narrowly focused on the church. It, it's written to Christians about the way that we we treat each other, about what is required of Christians toward each other, really spurred on by a few things. Number one, you know, the last four or five years, it's no secret, have been really difficult and hard for a lot of, for Christians, there's been a lot of division over the way people handle COVID, over Trump, over politics, racial tension. And it's been distressing to see friends, people who who agree on almost everything, not speak to each other because they disagree on a on an important issue that's not ultimate, or they disagree on an approach to an issue. And then I had my own experience, uh, as you know, getting very publicly dismissed from uh, national religious broadcasters over a disagreement and uh, being kind of the, it was weird for like two weeks, I was sort of in the news. You know, I, w- I was the news, you know, like there were three news stories. If you go online, it was like COVID, Afghanistan, and me getting getting dismissed. I didn't, I didn't intend for it to be public. I didn't want to be this public thing, but I felt like the Lord gave me this opportunity to talk about unity. You know, a lot of times when people get get hurt by an, another organization, particularly Christian organization, in the last few years, there's kind of this desire to go on almost like a revenge tour and get a pound of flesh and really kind of milk that for everything. And I'm not disparaging anybody who's chosen to react differently than I did, but I felt like this is an opportunity to say, hey, listen, why are we Christians fighting over really dumb things? Why, why can't we have unity? So I really wanted to lay out in a book for people to easily to understand what is required of us as Christians 
loving each other as brothers and sisters. What is unity? What isn't unity? What are the things worth fighting for? What are the things that we should be open-handed about? And, uh, and a number of other uh, other topics in the book. Well, Dan, one of the things about this book that I really appreciate is that it, this easily, as you kind of referenced, could have been a tell-all, like a memoir, kind of your story and your side of things. But that's not what this book is. This book is really a call for Christians to cultivate the virtues and how we think about and how we talk about truth in the public square, as well as the way we talk about grace, kind of cultivating those virtues. But also there are certain fights that are worth having. One of the things you kind of set up is you really have two parts to the book. You have this idea of worthy virtues as well as worthy fights. And we'll unpack a little bit about these throughout the conversation. But I wanted to kind of start on this idea of love. This is where you start about what does love require? Love is one of the virtues and one of the ideas that I think is most misunderstood today in our culture, where love is love or love is just complete acceptance of whatever. Um, but love is, that's not a really biblical idea of love. And so I wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit about what love is and what love is not, especially in a very divided age. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, it's funny when we think about the word love, I mean, obviously it's been sort of perverted in, in the culture. Love now means that you affirm everything someone believes that in order to love, this is kind of the secular concept of love, that in order to fully see me as human, you have to affirm every everything I do, which is really, really doesn't work. I mean, we have all kinds of relationships with people that we don't agree with on everything, you know, including people we're very close to. I mean, I've been married for 21 years. Angela and I don't agree on everything. We love each other. But actually, the biblical concept of love, I actually think means to stick with someone and to, and to love them despite disagreeing with them and through disagreements. And I think the Christian concept of love is just like that. The Christian vision of love is so rich and so deep. And in this book, I'm specifically talking about the way that Christians are commanded to love each other. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, love one another as I have loved you. So it's it's a supernatural love. Jesus has laid his life down for his disciples. He's laid his life down for us. So he calls us to love each other in the same way. And you think about who he's talking to, this is in John 13. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to to die. And he, you know, he's put together a kind of a motley crew. He's put together a crew of folks who, you know, on one hand, you have um, Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was considered a sellout to the Romans. He'd capitulated to, to Rome. He made money off his fellow Jewish people by extorting money from them. He wasn't very well liked by, by most of his people. On the other hand, you have Simon the Zealot, who's a couple of clicks away from an insurrectionist, you know, and wants to overthrow Rome. Rome, Jesus puts them together and says, love each other as I've loved you. And this is kind of what, it's sort of a microcosm of the church, where church from every nation, tribe, and tongue, Jesus is saying to love each other. And there should be something, Jesus would later say, that the uh, the world should will know that you are, that we are his by the way we love each other. In other words, there should be something distinctive about Christians, that they should look in on what we are on Christians, say, I don't really agree with them. I don't understand what they believe. It's a little strange to me. But man, look at how they treat each other. Look how they love each other. That they have no business. The church should be the one place where people come together and they have no business kind of being friends, and yet they are. Francis Schaeffer, who's one of the 20th century's great apologists, you spoke truth to the culture, was prophetic in every way. He wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian, one of his final books. And he was really burdened by the lack of unity in the church. And one of the things he says was that God gives the world the right to judge the validity of our faith by the way we treat each other. And so this is kind of what I'm putting forward in this book. And I really kind of lay out in here, what does love require of Christians? And I think 1 Corinthians 13 gives us this great 
thing. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Not naive, naivete, not a lack of accountability, but a benefit of the doubt, believes all things, hopes all things, all those kinds of things. So I, I try to sort of talk about that. What, what does this look like? What is friendship? I spent a lot of time on friendship in this book as well. So as we talk about this idea and concept of love, it really undergirds all of the virtues in many ways. As, as we said with Henry, that love for another is the sum of the Christian ethic. And that's really how you break out kind of this idea of these worthy virtues. You start with love, then you go into ideas of peace and forgiveness, joy and humility. Obviously, we could spend an entire episode or more just kind of unpacking a couple of these virtues. But one of the things I wanted to do is this idea of forgiveness. One of the things you've mentioned is this is a very personal book not only in terms of the story and kind of what led up to it, but also as you kind of think about engaging and talking about these various ideas. So I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that idea of of forgiveness and what Christian forgiveness looks like, especially as that virtue seems to have kind of fallen on hard times in recent days. Yeah, I mean, uh, forgiveness was a big part of why I wanted to write this, because I've had the opportunity to really practice that and experience it myself. And I when I talk about forgiveness, I'm talking about big, deep hurts. You know, um, if you've been hurt by someone you love or betrayed, I've had my ministry. I've had two real big sort of betrayals. You know, uh, we mentioned the one, but I had another one. Another thing happened when when, when I was uh, pastoring my first church, and uh, it was really hard. And, and I talk about it a little bit at length in the book. And I remember I had a mentor call me, and he said, "Man, because I wanted to quit." And he's like, first of all, you're not quitting. Second of all, you know, you're right; they're wrong." but you have to forgive. And uh, I break down, like really, in my view, there's three levels of forgiveness. Either, you know, There's like the basic level, which is just refusing to carry around bitterness and anger and let it uh, affect us. And I really think this is important for leaders, especially. I've, I've seen leaders, I've been around leaders, I've, people who cannot let go, cannot release the, their hurt to the Lord and allow forgiveness to, to take place. Really, it hurts every relationship. It hurts their leadership. It poisons everything. And look, this takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. I think the Lord has to do a work in our heart. It's not automatic. I think we have to be intentional about it. Uh, I also think it's a rhythm. You know, when Peter asked Jesus about how often should I forgive, and Jesus says, you know, 70 times seven, he's not giving them a um, checklist or a formula. It's, it's a rhythm. It's a way of life. So every time you drive past that house, every time you hear that piece of music play, or every time... You know, you have to go back to the Lord. You have to draw on the forgiveness that he has given to us so that we can forgive others. And I really took a lot of comfort in Joseph's story in Genesis, where he looks at his brothers and says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. He called what happened to him evil. So he wasn't dismissing it. He wasn't sweeping it under the rug. Now, people say forgive and forget, but that's not really a biblical concept. I don't think Joseph forgot being trafficked into Egypt, you know, but he was able to say what you intended for evil, God meant for good. So that's a basic level. That, that is necessary. And when we do that, we, we release the burden to the Lord. We refuse to live in prison. When we carry around bitterness, it doesn't hurt the person that we're mad at. It only hurts us. There's a second level, I think, reconciliation. That is, we should pursue when we can, but it's not always possible. That requires two parties. That requires contrition, humility on both sides. And sometimes we collapse that into forgiveness as if, you know, we tell the offended party, you just need to forgive. Well, maybe they're forgiving, but they're not willing to, you know, they're not ready. There's no, there's not reconciliation there. I think we should pursue reconciliation. We should try to be at peace with people. I've tried to do that even with some of my deep hurts. And then there's a third level of trust. And that requires, man, a lot of both parties working toward each other, 
rebuilding what has been broken, not always possible, right? If the church treasure runs off with the church money, well, the church is going to forgive him, but probably not make him treasure for a while or ever. So I think there's three levels and we collapse those three, but at the very basic level, forgiveness. And forgiveness is just, uh, I've come to believe that unforgiveness and bitterness really cripples and hurts Christian ministry. I think resentment fuels a lot of our disagreements, even among Christians today. In the public square, when you see Christians fighting each other, there's underneath that there's some deep resentments or some hurts or some something that didn't get resolved. And so I think it's I think it's very important. And the only way we can do it really is by understanding that what we have done against Christ is worse than what's been happened to us. If we if we can even imagine that, that what we've done to God is worse than what has been done to us. And so I think that's really important. Joseph, I think, is a great example because you not only see forgiveness there, but he's also testing his brothers. You know, I used to read that passage when I was a kid and think, why is he being so hard on his brothers and hiding this stuff? What I realized was he was trying to see, can I be in a relationship with these people? Can I trust them? I've already forgiven them, but can we be reconciled? Have they, have they, have, are they contrite for what they've done? And that's why he, he kind of engages all those practices and, and, and really sees if they're trustworthy again. So it's complicated. And I really walk through that, but the basic level, and you really know that you've forgiven somebody, I think over time, if their name comes up and it doesn't automatically make you angry, if you're not wedging your personal hurt into every conversation you have. So that, that was really important to me. Yeah. And one of the things that I see modeled kind of, kind of piggybacking off this idea of forgiveness that you kind of unpack a little bit of this, this idea of humility, which is especially important in today's age when there's so many opportunities, especially on social media, to become, you know, quote, Christian famous or to use even our own resentment and our own hurt to kind of propel ourselves forward, to, to grind the axe in some ways and to kind of gain a platform or a position. And one of the things that I've noticed, you know, while our careers overlap for, I guess, about eight or probably seven or eight years or so at the ERLC. One of the things that was always really striking to me and about our continued friendship is that you, you know, as we kind of opened up saying, you're kind of a prolific author in many ways, but you're also very humble and gracious. You're not very self-promoting in many ways. And you have that kind of charitable, kind of humble attitude as you engage people, even those that you vehemently disagree with on very, very important issues. So I wanted to see if you could unpack that concept of humility. Because I think humility to some seems like weakness or this idea of kind of denying the gifts that God has given me in some sense. But how do we use and kind of cultivate this sense of humility as a sense of strength and also a sense of dependence upon the Lord? Uh, because He is the one who is working. He is the one who is guiding and putting us on these paths. But in the same respect, we live in kind of a celebrity culture in some sense, especially in ministry, kind of ministry circles. So what is this idea of humility and why is it so key to a distinctive Christian life? I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, I really think there's a there's an ongoing conversation, you know, among evangelicals about celebrity, about platform and and um, you know, in the one sense, it's a conversation unique to our age because of the digital age. Everybody has an opportunity to have a platform of some kind, right? We can, um, you know, easily go publish stuff. We can start a social media account. We start a newsletter, blog, all that stuff. And and the platforms kind of in and of themselves reward a constant perform, being performative, right? You're always on the stage. You're always chronicling all your things for a, for an assumed audience. I don't even know if people fully understand that, that they're doing that. 
I don't think all that's wrong. I think some of it's great. I mean, I post things and other people post things about family, about things, but you just have to understand that. So we're in that age. So it's, it's a conversation unique this age. And I think in the church, there's a real perverse incentive sometimes toward disunity, like to stand out, to be the person who's calling out this Bible teacher or person who is got this great victim story that you can sort of run with and become a, a thing. There are genuine victims. There are people who suffer, and I think their stories should be told. But there is an incentive to, to toward victimization and almost becoming a hero by being a martyr. So it's a unique conversation for our age. At the same time, I think we've always had platform and celebrity. If you think about it, Charles Spurgeon had a massive church. He also separately had a, a newsletter. He published a couple of sermons every week to this audience. You know, he wrote those and published those knowing that there's an audience because he felt like, you know, that he could bless them. George Whitfield preached to thousands, you know, I mean, even go back to the early church, you know, 5,000 were, were saved, like thousands were, were becoming Christians or, you know, it was, it was just Peter preached to this, to these masses at Pentecost. So I don't think it's anything new. I think God sometimes gifts people with an audience. He raises them up for, for those reasons. I'm grateful in some ways that some people have had platforms, right? If C.S. Lewis didn't have a platform, I would never have been able to read his works. Or if I think of growing up listening to, the, to Chuck Swindoll on the radio and his preaching helping me or Alistair Begg or other, other folks, I'm glad they had an audience. I'm glad they were, you know, they had a platform so that they found their way to me. Think of great books and all those things that found their way to you. Someone published them. There's some kind of platform. So I think the, the bigger question is how do we handle this? And do we use it for God's glory? It's really good and right to write things and publish things and to do podcasts and do all that. We do it assuming people will listen so we can bless and serve the body of Christ. I think it all comes down to, as you pointed out, humility. How, how do we do this? Are we trying to become a thing? Are we trying to be known or famous? Are we using these things? Um, would we be content with a small audience, with a small ministry that nobody sees? And do we understand that really... The body of Christ, for the most part, is made up of mostly ordinary people whom the world will never know about, right? The kingdom of God is really built of people who are mostly anonymous. And I think personal virtue and personal character matter. One of the things that I think Mark Tim Keller, who recently passed, one of our spiritual heroes, is, you know, he he had this audience, but, you know, the way he he talked about his personal spiritual disciplines and his personal habits. And he did a lot of ministry before he even became a thing, if that makes sense. So there's a very fine line there. I think we have to really ask ourselves really important questions. Why am I doing this? Why am I posting this? Why am I writing this? Am I doing it so that I become famous? Am I doing it so that I can have a crowd? Am I embedded in local church community? Do I have people around me who can keep me accountable? Do I have these good conversations in my life? Do I think more highly of myself than I should? I think those are real, really important questions to ask ourselves. Paul says, I think best, he says, I'm willing to be exalted, you know, ele elevated, or I'm willing to be humbled. You know, I, I can be rich, I can be poor. You know, and I think that should be our attitude as well. We have to resist that. I, I get nervous about the fact that you can graduate seminary and look, I teach at a seminary, you teach at a seminary. I'm, I believe strongly in seminary. Everyone should go if they have the opportunity. But that there's a, a career pathway out of a seminary that is kind of a shortcut where you can just kind of go and be provocative. 
you can be the person who's calling out everybody, who's calling out all these teachers. Who's And that is a lane. That is a career path. There's a career path towards cynicism. I have a whole chapter on cynicism, but a career path on kind of being against the evangelical church and, and calling out everything and anti this and anti that. And I, I really want to encourage folks to not do that, to steep themselves in theology, steep themselves in, in spiritual disciplines, to be humble about leaders, even when you disagree. If you're a young person and you're just discovering theology, know that you're, you're standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history. Nothing you come across is going to be new, novel, and the mistakes you might see in the pastor you grew up with or in the theologian that you, you disagree with. Understand that you are going to make the same mistakes, that, that you are going to have things people disagree with, and really resist that kind of temptation to make a name for yourself by being against somebody or against the church or against this. I, I think we have a lot of false courage that people think, I'm calling out some great Christian leader, calling out this, therefore I have courage. And I, I'm not sure that's that's true. So anyways, there's a lot in there, but I, I just think humility and asking the Lord, what will you have me do today? And how do you want me to manage this is really, I think, the, the important approach. Yeah, I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head there talking about this idea of humility and how it, in many ways, similar to love, kind of should permeate the entire Christian approach, not only to other people, but even some of the most important issues of the day. Because that idea of humility is something we've talked a lot about here on the podcast, especially I talk about in my classes as well, of cultivating epistemic humility, which when I add epistemic before it, I mean this being humble in what we know, but also in what we do not know. Sometimes I think we kind of get, and Brandon Smith a, a few weeks ago had a really helpful article at the Gospel Coalition talking about how do you know if you're in the cage stage? And cage stage is when you're often very angry and kind of righteously angry because you ha- you've discovered the truth, you know the truth. But the way we approach and the way we kind of hold truth is often we kind of close fists. And there are certain issues, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, that are close fist issues that we do need to stand up. There's a worthy fights that we need to have. But even the way we approach some of those fights really matters as we see kind of other people on the kind of the other side in that many in that way. But as we kind of cultivate that sense of humility, that kind of pours over into the question of what do we fight for? You know, we often talk about in our tribe, and this is something I appreciate about your book, you kind of start with the idea of virtue and grace, because we often start about on ideas of truth in our circles. We talk about, you know, the avoiding compromising truth. But something I think you wisely do here is to remind us that we can, yes, we can compromise truth, but we can equally compromise grace. And both are grave sins and grave issues uh, that the church needs to be aware of as we engage in some of these uh, big issues of our day. So kind of shifting gears a little bit towards this part two, where you talk about worthy fights. Obviously, that idea is we should not be compromising on truth, that truth matters, words matter. So I wanted to see if you can kind of set up a little bit about this idea of how we approach kind of the rich relationship between truth and grace, between virtue and kind of vices, or even virtues and kind of these worthy fights, how we approach that fine kind of balance that you've been speaking to. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to let people know that you know, it, when, when we talk about unity, it's not that sort of like, when most people think about unity, they think of a bunch of people s- standing around a campfire, holding hands and singing Kumbaya and some weird ritual. Unity is actually people who, who disagree different with different talents and gifts coming together for the good of the whole. Think of the way that a car synchronizes, right? If, if one part of your car is out of sync, 
your car doesn't work. Or, or the Bible compares uh, us to a human body, that we have different parts we all work together. One of the things I think that's important is understanding what things are worth fighting for and what things are not. A lot of times today, I think Christians are spending a lot of times fighting over secondary and tertiary issues and using all their energy on those things, and they don't have enough energy to fight for the important fights. The Bible does say there is a body of truth that has been passed down 2,000 years of church history called Christian orthodoxy, Christian doctrine. You know, um, Jude says to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. There's a body of truth that tells us who God is and who Christ is and what does it mean to be a Christian that we don't have the authority to change. We don't, we don't have the apostolic authority to edit and change to fit the times. It's about truth and goodness and beauty and who, who, who God is. It's, it's beautiful uh, orthodoxy. It's worth defending. And Paul told, tells Timothy over and over in the apostolic book, you know, the, the pastoral epistles, he says to hold fast to these things, to have courage on these things. So Christians should be unified around these truths. But then there's a lot of issues that Christians have been disagreeing about for 2,000 years, things like baptism or things like um, the sign gifts or, you know. And what I do in the book is I sort of categorize into three categories. You have that first layer, which is Christian orthodoxy that we can't budge on, right? Things like the virgin birth, things like the exclusivity of Christ. I would argue a biblical sexual ethic. It's so woven through scripture that it it we, we, we can't edit what God has given us there. But then there's secondary issues that good Christians have disagreed about. So things like, you know, the mode of baptism or, you know, complementarianism, egalitarianism. Now, I, th I think this is at the level, these secondary issues, where really you have churches, you know, this is how churches organize. This is where den denominations divide. So I'm Baptist, you're Baptist. I'm proudly Baptist. We believe in credo baptism, baptism by immersion. A lot of my favorite people I read and study are Anglican or Presbyterian. They disagree with us on this. I think they're wrong. We probably wouldn't go to the same churches, but there's a lot we can do together. We agree on the gospel. We agree on the center of the gospel, but we have these distinctives. I actually don't think this is a problem. Some people look at all the denominations and say, man, this is not what Jesus intended. I don't really see it that way. I see them as a mosaic that um, every denomination, every tradition brings something, right? And we can learn from each one of them, even though we're distinctive in the, in the way we organize. And so sometimes these secondary issues within a denomination like ours are primary, and that's okay. So Baptists are always going to be complementary. They're always going to be credo-Baptist. That's fine. And other denominations will be different. But then there's another level of tertiary issues that even within the same congregation, we may disagree on, right? How, how old exactly is the earth? Or we all believe Jesus is coming back. But how does that work out? People have different interpretations of the end times. Christians have been debating this forever. And we can have opinions on that. We should, but we should hold them loosely. These are not things that you would go to the stake for. These are not things that you would uh, die for, but you might have disagreements and we should be charitable about those. I think when we raise third level issues, even fourth level issues, think about like how we educate our kids or what we do and how we interact politically, like exactly how we exercise that or some of those things, we may feel very strongly, but it's not a top tier issue. And we have to learn how to have these ideas and have robust conversations, but hold them loosely. The problem is we're raising third and fourth level issues to the level of orthodoxy, and we're separating and fighting over these things. And I just think that's tragic. I know people, Christian leaders who 
overlap on the Venn diagram of beliefs, maybe 80-90%, and yet don't talk to each other because they're savaging each other over these, these smaller issues. Sometimes this is called theological triage. I think Al Mohler coined that term maybe a decade ago or so. Dr. Mohler did. It's a great term. The idea is not new. I mean, Christians have been doing this throughout Christian history. But it's just a matter of saying which issues are, are more important and how do I distinguish those. I think this is very important for Christians because we don't want to waste energy. We don't want to waste time. We don't want to waste, waste resources fighting over things that are not worth fighting over. We want to save that to really fight over what matters. And really, Christian orthodoxy matters and truth matters. I think Paul sets the framework for this really well. In 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy— Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. In other words, there's a good fight. There's a fight worth having. In 2 Timothy, he says, avoid stupid and foolish arguments. <laughs> so he is telling Timothy, there are some things, some rabbit holes, some trails that, that don't waste time on that. Don't, don't, don't separate from friends over that. Don't do that. But here's a good fight. And I think to Christians, I'm trying to say, let's fight the good fights. Let's fight the worthy fights. Let's fight the fights that matter. Yeah, I really like the way that you frame that and even kind of employing that idea of triage. Uh, obviously, Dr. Mueller, as you said, kind of coined that term about a decade or so ago. And then Dane Ortland in a really helpful book, uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, also kind of unpacks that idea a little bit. One of the things I've tried to do in my classes is also kind of apply that, not just in theological triage, but also an ethical triage is kind of, there's kind of two sides of the coin here about what God has revealed to us in terms of truth. And then what do we do in response to the nature of ethics, especially the nature of the Christian ethic? And so that idea of kind of ethical triage, kind of pairing that with theological triage is something I think is kind of worthy and something that we should kind of unpack and kind of continue to chew on, um, especially in today's church. Well, Dan, there's obviously so much in this book that we could and should unpack. Um, obviously, our conversation should start to wrap up here in a little bit because we've been going for a while. But one of the things I wanted to do, and one of the things we always do kind of at the end of our conversations is provide some next steps, some next resources. Uh, one of the things in a podcast like this is to kind of push and challenge folks, but also to push them a little bit deeper, to dig deeper. And so when you were writing this book, what kind of resources really stood out to you? Are were particularly helpful as you are framing some of these ideas? And then what are some recommended resources that you would encourage folks if they want to go a little bit deeper, ideas of love or forgiveness or humility, or even this kind of idea of triage and how we think about what is a worthy and what is the good fight? Well, there's a couple of books I really enjoyed. There's not a ton of stuff on unity, uh, Christian unity that's contemporary. So I, I was really eager to write this to, to fill some of that gap. But there's a really great book that was published a few years ago by Timothy George and John Woodbridge called The Mark of Jesus, Loving in a Way the World Can See. Here are two you know, renowned theologians and his, uh, a theologian, historian, a church historian saying, here's kind of the parameters. This is what it means to love. Here's what love is. Here's what, what it is. And here's what unity is. And here's what it is. And also Francis Schaeffer's book, The Mark of a Christian, is really good. And he kind of sort of lays that out as well. And again, Francis Schaeffer was no shrinking violet. He was no squish. I mean, he was bold and on truth, but nevertheless, he really was passionate about Christian unity. Francis Chan has a really good uh, book on unity. Um, it's called Until Unity. Um, and then, you know, I think there's um, that book you mentioned by Dane Ortland. It's either Dane or Gavin. It's one of the Ortlands. Read all the Ortlands, really, but... 
It's called Finding the Right Hills to Die on. And it really takes this concept of theological triage. I think it's a good book to go through, like with your elders or whatever, your your church leaders to say, what are the things we're going to, and he really fleshes some of those things out. I also read a lot about friendship in there. And so there's some really good stuff on friendship out there that I think is important. I think it's a, it's a lost art, honestly. Augustine has great stuff on friendship and others, but. Yeah, that's a really helpful one. I'm glad you pointed that out. I definitely said Dane Ortland, but this is his brother Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for Theological Triage. Uh, so we'll make sure to link to that. It's from Crossway. We'll have that along with the other recommended resources that you mentioned in the show notes for listeners' sake. But Dan, I really appreciate not only this book, but I really appreciated your friendship and kind of mentorship over the years and just really grateful for your work. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a delight to do it and um, uh, love talking to you. From all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dan and learn more about his new book as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.